Hello, welcome to Reading People. This week, Meg and Morgan join me, Megan Lane, to talk to David Helfand. David is an astrophysicist and a faculty member at Columbia University in New York. In 2005, he received a call to help found Quest University, Canada's first independent not-for-profit uni, and was Quest president from 2008 to 2015. David shares his knowledge of shaking up the education system with other new educational institutions, including us here at Enmite. Thank you for talking with us today, David. Entirely my pleasure. So let's start with your choices of literature. So you've chosen a play and also a book, The Play, Enemy of the People by Henrik Ibsen. Why have you chosen that piece? It may seem peculiar that an astrophysicist would choose a play, but in fact, when I went to university, I was a theater major, and so I read many plays. And Ibsen was always one of my favorites. Ibsen was really the founder of modern drama in the latter half of the 19th century. In Victorian Europe, the plays were mostly melodramas done for entertainment, whereas the serious sort of political commentary of the time was confined to novels like the Brontes and Thackeray and, of course, the entire work of Dickens. So Ibsen really broke through in writing about modern political themes, and Enemy of the People is the favorite of one of his more than two dozen plays that he wrote. The translation that we use today is by Arthur Miller, the famous American playwright of the middle of the last century. Uh, And he translated the play in 1950, which was 68 years after it was written. And now here we are a little over 68 years further along. And yet what's striking to me is is the relevance of the play to today's politics. And this is summed up beautifully by Miller when he wrote in the introduction, the central theme of this play is the central theme of our social life today. Simply, it is the question of whether the democratic guarantees protecting political minorities ought to be set aside in times of crisis. More personally, it is the question of whether one's vision of the truth ought to be a source of guilt at a time when the mass of men condemn it as dangerous. It is an enduring theme because there never was, nor will there ever be, an organized society able to countenance the individual who insists that he is right, whilst the vast majority is absolutely wrong. The story of this play is of a small provincial Norwegian town in which they build a spa that's going to become a retreat, and they advertise the great virtues of the waters. There is a young scientist in the town who actually tests the waters and discover they're heavily polluted with previous industrial waste, and that the people who come to the spa are going to get sick and, and, and do badly. But the spa is a financial success, and so the town is determined to protect the spa against this charge that the waters are, as they actually are uh, heavily polluted. One of the senior members of the town's administration uh, is named Peter Stockman, and his younger brother is a doctor, Stockman, is the person who's charging that the waters are polluted. And there's a wonderful scene that I think sums up the the play perfectly, where Peter Stockman, the, the alderman, says, you're like a man with an automatic brain. As soon as an idea breaks into your head, no matter how idiotic it may be, you get up like a sleepwalker and start writing a pamphlet about it. Whereas the doctor replies, but Peter, don't you think it's a citizen's duty to share a new idea with the public? And Peter Stockman says, the public doesn't need new ideas. The public is much better off with old ideas. (laughs) To which the doctor replies, you're not even embarrassed to say that? And Peter says, if a man gives you an order, he's persecuting you. Nothing is important enough to respect once you decide to revolt against your audience. The doctor says, my convictions come from the condition of the water. The convictions will change when the water changes and for no other reason. And Peter replies, what are you 
talking about convictions. You are an official. You keep your convictions to yourself. So they nearly come to blows over this. And then Peter states categorically that he will ruin the doctor if he persists in alerting people to the fact that the waters in the spa are polluted. And his wife is very concerned about this, the doctor's wife. Please think he's got all the power on his side. And the doctor says, yes, but I have the truth on mine. And the wife says, without power, what good is truth? And I think that very much speaks to the political situation in this country and in my country today. The truth has become largely irrelevant without the power to assert it. And so the doctor, as being enemy of the people, is the person who's willing to stand up for what is actually true about the world, even though it's politically unpopular. And I identify with that notion. On that point, how do you convince people to believe in such a radical new idea? It's a challenge, and you have to start where people are. So just because you've convinced yourself that some new idea is the right way to go, that doesn't mean that everyone else is going to automatically buy into it. You can't sell the truth just because it's true. And so it's really important, and I think scientists in general have done a poor job at this, to understand the audience one is trying to convince rather than trying to start from one's own perspective and just propagating it out as though it were going to magically be accepted. How do you not get bogged down by that innocent? Because obviously, if you have the idea of what you think is to be correct, and you're trying to push that idea forward, but if the public or people don't see that, how do you not get frustrated? Oh, it can be extremely frustrating. (laughs) Uh, In the play, the doctor gets frustrated to the point that he tries to publish this in the local newspaper. And the local newspaper has been a campaigner for the truth and for democratic values. But when the alderman raised the rabble against him, the newspaper editor sort of backs away and says, I believe in democracy. When my readers are overwhelmingly against something, I'm not going to impose my will on the majority. So this is the whole thing. The theme of Enemy of the People is the tyranny of the majority over the actual way the world works. And it's a problem that democratic societies were designed to solve, that democracies would protect the rights of minorities. Whereas, in fact, we see that they've done an uneven job of that over history. uh, And today, they're perhaps doing the least good job of that that they have in many, many years. And because of this sort of high political nature of the play, I think it was censored in China. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So actually, the reception there was not at all. So the strong messages obviously clearly come through. Yes, that's right. So yes, any autocratic regimes would certainly not like this play because yeah. standing up for the truth is not the way to gain uh, currency in such a such a society. Have you ever had, I mean, because obviously one of the biggest parts of the play is that the protagonist, kind of the town turns against him and he ends up very on his own. Have you ever had a public backlash against anything you tried to push forward in your career? Yes. Well, many years ago when I was offered tenure at Columbia, I had long prior to that, decided that I didn't believe in the tenure system and was going to reject it. Uh, And this turned out to be harder than I thought. You would think a university would be happy with the notion that someone wasn't demanding a permanent job for life without review. Uh, But this turned out to be very difficult to achieve. It took two years. uh, And I finally did achieve it. And after that, wrote an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is a newspaper read by many academics in the United States. And I got a lot of backlash from that editorial, uh, pointing out what I thought were the fundamental flaws of tenure in an academic system. Uh, And even still today, 25 years later, continue to get some negative uh, feedback from that. But I think I thrive on negative feedback, so it's okay. (laughs) So do you think nowadays in the current climate where social media companies are starting to sense people that it's actually a dangerous thing, whether the opinions of these people are right or not, do you think they should be able to vocalize them anyway? That's a very difficult question. I, I 
I myself abstain from social media and in fact never use the words without the adjective toxic in front of it. Um, I think of the benefits of social media, I will not say there are none, but I think the overwhelming uh, consequence of social media is negative in our society. It's a free, powerful way to propagate misinformation. And unfortunately, misinformation is often easier to believe than information. And so what the companies that facilitate social media should do, I think is a very vexing question because it's obvious that they have enormous power to decide which ideas will be uh, allowed through and which ideas will be censored. And that power, of course, is the same power that dictators have in autocratic regimes. And turning that over to private for-profit companies strikes me as really dangerous. On the other hand, allowing what has up until now been more or less the practice of free, unfettered access to any wacko who wants to propagate their uh, destructive ideas also doesn't seem very healthy. So I, I really don't have an answer to the question, but it's certainly a very important question. Before we look at the Pickwick Papers, perhaps we turned your book, A Survival Guide to the Misinformation Age, and you were talking um, in front of an audience at the Hay Festival last night, in fact, about this. And you described the scientific habits of mind. Could you explain that? Is that the way of thinking that we should be processing all this information we have at our fingertips nowadays? Yes. So one has access through several billion web pages to most of the accumulated knowledge of humankind. uh, And of course, a lot of accumulated nonsense as well. And so the question is, how does one sort through that information and pick out the nuggets that actually comport with reality and leave the rest aside. And well, of course, there are many realms on the internet. My concern as a scientist is information relevant to the problems that we face in the material world. And so I've outlined a set of scientific habits of mind, I call them, that allow one to assess for oneself without external input whether or not ideas are at least plausible. One can only, of course, assure oneself if an idea is correct if one reproduces it and one can't reproduce all of scientific knowledge oneself. Um, But by being able to reason quantitatively, to make estimates on the back of an envelope that is very roughly without all the details necessarily being known, being able to read a graph, understanding basic probability and statistics, one can rather easily decide whether or not it's plausible, whether or not it's absolutely true. It's not even a question that science usually asks. Science makes falsifiable hypotheses about the world and leaves the discovery of truth to mathematicians um, and maybe philosophers, I suppose. Do you ever find that kind of science exists in its own bubble? Is it sometimes not always accessible to the general public? I don't know, how do you kind of bridge that gap? I find often there is kind of a disparity between the two. Yes, unfortunately, the scientific literature has been jargonized to the point where it's <laughs> virtually inaccessible to anyone other than experts. You know, the, the, the whole problem with the system here is that the process of getting a PhD is the process of learning more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. And unfortunately, you then write that in a highly jargon-filled format. So unfortunately, what many scientists, what most scientists are not trained to do is to translate that to an intelligent layperson who is not an ACL and not someone in the field, uh, but who actually is interested in the information. I, I think that's where at Enmite, the notion of developing the abilities of students to write at persuasively and to speak effectively in public and to translate what they're doing for the customers that they're actually doing it for is a critical part, and in this country, at least a unique part of the engineering education. And that's one of the reasons I'm so interested in this project. 
When you're speaking, do the messages get old? Do you change your messages? Because often you've said you elevate the credibility of our experience. Does your opinion change? Do you change your mind about some things you're saying sometimes? Well, I, I do experiment with different ways of attempting to communicate the ideas. Uh, and the current mode I've adopted is that I will start some complex argument with seeing if we can agree on a small set of facts. And I'm very careful about defining what a fact is to avoid epistemological arguments. I say a fact Fact is a measurement of the material world done with the best available equipment uh, with an assigned uncertainty because no measurement is perfect. So we have to know how uncertain that measurement is vetted by skeptical review and preferably even reproduced by an independent person. If that happens, then we have what I call a fact about the world. You know, the temperature in this room, we could have several different kinds of thermometers. We could measure the temperature in this room, which is just a measure of the average speed of the air molecules whacking into the thermometer. Uh, and we could come to an agreement about what that was. And we'd say it's a fact that it is 21 degrees in this room. So I try to start with some very basic things that everyone can agree on and then slowly build uh, infrastructure on top of that of ideas that connect the facts and then of models that might explain why the facts are connected in the way they are and then what the model might predict about what happened when the facts change or when something evolves into the future. Uh, I'm not sure, because I'm not a professional psychologist, uh, how to assess the effectiveness of this mode. But at least it's comfortable for me, and it seems to be reasonably comfortable for my audiences. I was asked this question last night. Uh, have you ever adopted some misinformation yourself and then propagated it yourself <laughs> and then come to discover that it wasn't true? Uh, and the, I, of course, it's, I have. Everyone has. And the w example I used was about the effect of global warming on hurricanes and cyclones. Uh, the standard argument, I'm sure all of you have heard this, it's reproduced in every kind of media from expert media to the social media, uh, that global warming is making more intense storms. There's more storms and there's more intense storms. And so I would repeat that because the simple idea is that the water warms, warm water is what feeds cyclones and therefore the storms get more intense. But then one day, and this is not a good approach to this, but I recalled anecdotally that when I was growing up, we had a number of very strong hurricanes in New England, northern eastern part of the United States, uh, and that there hadn't in the last couple of decades been any there. I thought, well, that's odd. If the storms are all stronger and more intense and more numerous, there should have been more. So I went to look for the records from the 1930s to the present where every hurricane is recorded along with its maximum strength, etc., and discovered that it is not in fact, true. In fact, the number of hurricanes has decreased slightly, not statistically significantly, but decreased slightly uh, in the last 40 years compared to the 40 years before that when global warming was not a factor. And in the last five years, when there's been lots of headlines about strong hurricanes, in fact, we've received fewer hurricanes than we would have expected. So it's just factually incorrect, but it's a meme that everybody propagates and I was suckered into that. So now I have a slide about how you have to go back and look at the actual data if you want to know Know whether something is a measurement or a fact about the real world or not. <laughs> How do you balance your time you know, teaching what's already known, but also finding out more for yourself and researching? So I've been a research astrophysicist for about 50 years, but when I came became president of Quest University. Turns out being president of a startup university is more or less a full-time job. Uh, and so while I still had a number of projects I was working on, the rate at which they progressed exponentially declined. Uh, and indeed, just a few months ago, I published a very big paper with a bunch of colleagues that we'd been working on probably for six or seven years.
years, <laughs> not continuously, which is why it took so long. Uh, and indeed, that's the last major research project I've done. I've spent more time recently on educational issues, partly because I'm interested in teaching, but also because I'm interested in the institutions of higher education, uh, their flaws and their advantages. And so I spend much more of my time talking about, reading about, and working on education. I also think it's critically important, as we referred to obliquely earlier, that scientists communicate more effectively with the public. And so I spend a fair amount of my time both giving public talks, but also giving my time to organizations uh, such as the American Institute of Physics, of which I'm chair of the board, uh, Science Counts, which is an organization designed to support public support of science, um, to try to find more effective ways to do this communication and reorient ourselves back towards recognizing science as one, only one, but an important area of expertise that needs to be taken into account in constructing evidence-based policy as opposed to social media-based policy or ideologically-based policy. Well, should we move on to the second piece of literature you chose? Was it about the Pickwick papers that really resonated with you? Well, Mr. Pickwick, with whom I deeply identify, is an elderly, portly gentleman who cavorts around the English countryside with a set of companions, Samuel Snodgrass uh, and Tracy Tubman and Nathan Winkle, and sends all great names, as all Dickens' names are, and sends reports back to the Pickwickian club in London for the people who aren't aren't uh, privileged enough to travel around with him. And he gets into an endless series of scrapes and confrontations, uh, but all based on principle. So it's that that it shares with Ibsen's play, that principle is important. Uh, it's it's extremely humorous. It's Dickens' first long novel. It was published as a, as a serial uh, originally. And I just find it a, uh, a very humorous antidote to the, the, the depressing outcome of the tragedy of Ibsen's play. Um, but I must say, I have always, since I first read it, and I've read it three times, now, um, identified heavily with its main character, uh, perhaps a little too heavily, my wife would say, I think. <laughs> you do travel a lot. I do travel a lot. <laughs> I do get myself into circumstances which aren't always the easiest <laughs> to escape from, uh, but it's always with an overriding principle. I find astrophysics subject fascinating, but I found whenever I was learning about it that I got so absorbed into it and it's such a massive thing when you're looking at the scale of the universe and deep time and deep space. How do you kind of bring yourself back and not have an existential crisis and kind of come back to the real world and what almost seems trivial everyday problems of that when you're looking at something so massive? Ah, but that's, see, that's exactly the point. The everyday <laughs> problems are trivial. <laughs> I have, uh, my wife has a friend who whose husband is an avid amateur astronomer, and she won't look through his telescope because the vastness of the universe so terrifies her. <laughs> And I've never actually understood this. I've always seen it as just the opposite. The fact that the 100 billion neurons in each of our brains can apprehend that there are 100 billion stars of each of 100 billion galaxies, I find absolutely wonderful and astonishing. And simultaneously, it makes trivial any of the problems I have in my daily life. In 13.8 billion years, the universe doesn't really care. Uh, And I always end my classes with the admonition that the students should go out and celebrate their insignificance. (laughs) It's both they should recognize their insignificance, but celebrate the fact that they have this context that they can put themselves in the universe. So I I find it inspiring and enjoyable, although I recognize some people find it terrifying. (laughs) That is a very interesting philosophy. I I like that. As a physicist, what do you think of Anne Might's plan to accept students with no physics or math? I think it's positively brilliant. (laughs) 
uh, it's not going to be no physics and no math. They're going to have to have the GCSE levels in science and math. And that's essential because it's a language. However, what I find with our undergraduate students at a very highly selective university like Columbia, and even with graduate students who are being accepted into a program that gets 200 applications for five positions each year, that many students have some basic gaps in the most foundational aspects of mathematics and physics. Many of our institutions teach these subjects in the manner that you need to be able to see patterns in solving a math problem or solving a physics problem, sort of memorize those patterns. And so when you see something that matches the pattern, you can solve that problem. But that's not really understanding what mathematics is. And it's not really understanding what physical principles are. And so I think the opportunity to start without assuming that people know, I mean, yes, of course, you need to know arithmetic and trigonometry and things like that, but you would know that from the GSE level, right? To start from a pretty basic level and build up the concepts in a different way, in a way that allows students to construct the knowledge for themselves, is going to lead to a much deeper understanding of those subjects in the NMI graduates than you get out of graduates in other traditional institutions. And at Columbia, you pushed for, I think it was 20 27 years to get a science course taught to all students. Um, how did you learn to teach people? Well, that's a very good question. And it's the, the answer begins with a little bit of embarrassment. Uh, and it's part of the problem of the system. When I walked into my first classroom at Columbia with 75 students sitting there waiting for me to teach them something, I had literally never taught anybody anything. Because all the way through my PhD, I was never given a single day's tuition in how to teach. That's, in my view, an indictment of the university system all over the world. It's not just true at Columbia. It's not just true for me. Uh, in general, one doesn't get a lot of uh, experience or education in how to teach. So it was an experimental process for me. Uh, and I discovered a number of things. For example, uh, some words that one uses as a physicist that get so comfortable they're just automatic mean totally different things to other people, to normal people. Uh, and so, for example, I'll never forget in the, like the third lecture, I was talking about waves and everybody knows what a wave is. And so I drew a wave on the board and I talked about the wave propagating through space. And everyone was immediately confused because the word propagating is what they think of when they think of baby rabbits, right? <laughs> Ra rabbits <laughs> propagate, which means they split up into many, many, many things. And no, my wave was just moving through space, but that's what we call propagation. Uh, I also tried from the very beginning to start at a very basic level, recognizing the lack of deep understanding most students have. And again, this is teaching mostly non-science students, students that are not going to go on in STEM fields. Uh, and in doing that, to try to, and it's not easy, put myself in the place where I was before I understood something to then explain it in a way that mm. I came to understand it. Now, again, that doesn't match with everyone's level of understanding. So I try to use multiple approaches. I use very visual approaches, three-dimensional approaches. I use mathematical approaches. I use diagrammatic approaches and different people uh, catch on in different in different ways. But it's a real problem in our entire educational system that one of the principal roles of a faculty member is to teach students, and yet they've had little to no training in the teaching of students. Mm, sure. What are you most proud of in your life or career? Oh, my. <laughs> well, I think I'd have to say the most impactful thing I've done, and I like having impact, so I suppose that's what I'm proudest of, is the science course in Columbia's core curriculum. Columbia's had a core curriculum for 100 years this September. We're having a year-long centennial celebration. And it's the only institution in the U.S. and perhaps in the world that's had a core curriculum of this type for that long a period. That is, every graduate of Columbia since 1990 
has been through a course called Contemporary Civilization, in which they examine the philosophical basis of Western society. And they do it in small seminars of 20 students. Uh, they read a set of books, which are the same books, not all of them, but many of them. Uh, and it has an enormous impact on their lives as graduates of the institution. When I got to Columbia in 1977, I was thrilled to see that unlike all the other big American universities, they had not abandoned their core curriculum in the 1960s, but indeed maintained it. But I was simultaneously appalled that this intellectual coat of arms of the institution, as it was described in the catalog, consisted of seven humanities courses, zero math courses, zero science courses, and zero social science courses. But being young and naive, I thought, well, I'll just make up science courses and add it to this curriculum that we have, and then we'll do that. And so, as you noted, it took 27 years to that to be affected. And we just had a big party before I came here celebrating the 15th anniversary oh, of this course. Uh, the course in this past year got the highest rating from students it's ever had. And we just on Friday received a report from a group that goes around North America evaluating uh, general education requirements and has done so for 30 years and said that this course was by far uh, the best example they've seen in 30 years. And so the fact that we have external evaluation, but more importantly, internal evaluation from our students that are appreciating the fact that in their first year, they all have to study science, whatever they're going to do later on, has now become a part of this institutional ethos. And I'm very pleased that I got to play a role in that. Did you find that your time teaching in a traditional university was already pushing in the direction of wanting to change the system even before you heard about projects like Quest? Yes, I found it very frustrating, for example, that I would see students 75 minutes twice a week. Uh, they would be attentive for that 75 minutes twice a week, but then they'd go off and do five or six other courses 75 minutes twice a week, and the shattering of their attention span was therefore completely to be expected, such that I would give them assignments to do, I would give them things to read, I would give them problems to do, uh, and they would do them, but sort of in a transactional way. You give me the problem set, I will do the problem set. You give me my A, everybody will be happy. Uh, and I found it very frustrating that the students in general, not of course every student, but in general, were viewing this educational opportunity they had, a, a four-year period in their life where they had no other responsibilities other than to get involved in the joy of learning. They were using it in a transactional way that, you know, you tell me what to do, I will do it, you will give me my credential, and that's what I'm here for. And this was brought home to me most vividly by an incident in the science class required of all students when I went to give a talk to a bunch of fourth graders uh, in New York, and they were extremely enthusiastic. You know, they had thousands of questions about black holes in the universe and everything. And I came back to my set of first-year students at Columbia who were there in their seminar, so small class, opportunity to interact, and they were sitting there sort of ready to take notes, like I was going to lecture, which of course I wasn't going to do. Uh, and you could just see the expression behind their eyes. Okay, so we've got two hours here, and in two hours this class will be over. And then in five more classes, the semester will be over and I'll be one eighth of my way to Harvard Law School. You know, it was like, it was, it was all a transactional credential based thing. And I looked at them. We were going to discuss this fascinating article about the way, the way the signal went from the retina to the visual cortex, which had been done by splicing in genes to a rabbit embryo and the rabbit had grown up and individual neurons would light up as the signal went from the retina to the brain. I was just fancy. It's called the technicolor brain. You should look it up. It's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. And I was so excited to discuss this. And the students were clearly so unexcited, I looked at them and said, why aren't you more like fourth graders? And so not recognizing a rhetorical question, five of them raised their hands to tell me why they weren't like fourth graders. <laughs> 
And the first uh, person said, well, Professor Helfand, you have to understand when you're in fourth grade, you don't know how much there is to know. And so if you're curious about something, you ask a question. But by the time you get to our age, you know, 18, it's just so old, uh, then you know there's sort of an infinite amount of stuff to know. And it's all on Google anyway. So what's the point of asking a question? <laughs> I tried not to respond to that. And the next person said, well, Professor Elvin, you have to understand this is a seminar. And I said, yes, I know. We spend a lot of money to give you tiny classes like this where we can interact. And he said, yes, yes. But but asking a question is a sign of weakness. So you never ask a question in a seminar. You only make statements. Said in a lecture where you're anonymous, you can raise your hand and ask a question because the professor has no idea who you are. But in a seminar, you only make statements. I thought, well, that sort of destroys the point of a seminar. Yeah. Uh, and then a couple more equally lame excuses for why they weren't like fourth, year, fourth, fourth graders until the fifth person finally brought it home to me. And he said, Professor Helfand, what you're missing here is I'm paying for a degree, not for an education. And I thought, ah, now I understand the last 25 years of my life. <laughs> this is why I've had a problem in a classroom because they're paying for a degree, not for an education. Now, of course, that's not true of every student, um, but it's true of enough students that it clarified for me the need to try something not just a little bit different, not to adjust my technique, but to do something radically different about the institution and about the culture of the institution, not just about what went on in my classroom. At Quest, students write a letter to themselves. They open it. Is it the end of their time at Quest? Yeah. So if you were going to write a letter to yourself when you were a student and also now, what would you say to yourself? Oh, a very good question. Yes, at Quest, they write a letter the first day they're there to themselves. The last day they're there, they write another letter to themselves for five years into the future before they're allowed to open the first one. Oh, okay. Uh, the cleverest one I saw was someone who put $40 into the envelope with their letter because then when they graduated, they had $40. <laughs> good <move. laughs> Smart. But what would I write to myself? I was so naive about so many things when I went off to university. I can't imagine what I would have written. You have to understand this was 51 years ago, so that has something to do with my lack of imagination. Um, I think I would have said I was excited for the opportunity to learn new things. I was totally convinced I was going to have a career in the theater, and so clearly would have been grossly wrong about that. Um, and I had led a rather sheltered and uninspired childhood, so was mostly just excited to expand my horizons and to see what it offered. And of course, course, in the end, did expand my horizons enormously, such that I ended up as an astrophysicist, among other things. Um, but yeah, I think it would have been a very naive, but open and hopeful letter about what new experiences awaited me. Through redesigning the system, we're connecting with people all over the world that have similar visions uh, to end my antiquest. How can we stop these new universities from stagnating? That's a very good question. And Quest is now 12 years old. And regrettably, I can see the problems already. Uh, the first problem that all these institutions have is that all of their faculty have come through the traditional system and have succeeded in the traditional system. So therefore, have some investment in the traditional system. And while they're all interested and excited to try something new and perhaps had some problems with the traditional system, they nonetheless absorb through their skin the ethos and the culture of that system. And when difficulties arrive, they often revert back into the old system. And so the biggest challenge of leading such an institution is making sure that doesn't happen. There was a moment at Quest near to when I left that summed it up for me perfectly. Uh, and it's very depressing, but I'll tell you anyway. We were in a faculty meeting and debating vigorously some idea, which was great. That's what faculty meetings are for. But at some point, 
someone burst out and said, good grief, everybody has to recognize this is a job, not a mission. To which my response was, no, this is a mission, not a job. So it's keeping that notion that this is a mission to do something different uh, is essential in maintaining the energy and the enthusiasm and the creativity and the inventiveness that is necessary for a non-traditional institution to thrive. We're redesigning a system for the future. What do you think people will think that we did wrong when they look back in sort of 20, 30, 40 years? Well, of course, the future may be different. You're designing it for the present, really, uh, and your anticipation of the future. Um, I think one won't know if any of these experiments are a success until 20 years from now. Uh, people always ask me about, well, how do you know this Quest model works? You know, what assessment tools do you have? So, well, you know, I have assessment tools. I have the National Survey of Student Engagement. I have the assessments that our students do, the presentations they have to do before they graduate, and you can come and judge subjectively for yourself. But my only real criterion for the success of an educational institution are its graduates 25 years from now, happy, successful, productive members of society. And none of these new experiments have been around 25 years. So it may just be a way of escaping the assessment question. But I think it's true. My goal in trying to educate anyone at any level in any of the positions I've held is to have them be happy, successful, productive members of society 25 years from now. So was some particular decision poorly drawn? Was something chosen out of a variety of options that could have been chosen better? Of course, there'll be ability to critique that. But the real question is, are we developing students fully such that their potential is realized and they can go forth in life to do things that are beneficial to themselves and to society? When you're not thinking about the universe or redesigning education, what do you do in your free time? I cook. Oh, no. Now, why do I cook? Because I really, really, really like to eat. <laughs> and I find cooking by far the most relaxing thing I do. I know many people find it stressful, but I find it just the opposite. I, I find it therapeutic. extremely therapeutic and, and happy and making and, and just relaxing. My, my wife uh, does not cook. Uh, to the extent that she has trouble boiling water. I mean, it's really serious. <laughs> and since I travel a lot, so she doesn't starve, I, when I'm home, I cook large amounts of food and put it in little packages in the freezer so she can take them out and microwave them. She has, she has mastered the microwave. But whether it's that or it's cooking for 50 people, which I do, do not that infrequently, uh, I, I find it enormously relaxing and enjoyable. And then the product, of course, is delightful to eat. So that's certainly my principal occupation outside of astrophysics and university building. <laughs> So may I ask how many times you've dressed up as, say, someone like Santa or Dumbledore? Well, every semester <laughs> in the fall, I give the final lecture in Frontiers of Science, this core curriculum course that all Columbia students take, uh, as Santa Claus. <laughs> and every semester in the spring, uh, since it's not appropriate to be Santa Claus, although I'm a better Santa Claus, I dress up as Dumbledore. Um, so at least twice a year. <laughs> And that's been going on for 15 years now. <laughs> uh, at Quest, I was called on to do it somewhat more frequently. So I would dress as Dumbledore at graduation. I would dress at Santa every Christmas. And it's a number of times. I have a great Santa outfit. <laughs> a really, it's the most expensive piece of clothing I have, actually, my Santa it's outfit. It's a high-spec Santa suit. <laughs> it's a high-spec Santa suit, yes. And Dumbledore, I just use my academic robes, and I have a Dumbledore hat. So it works pretty well. <laughs> Do you have a quote or a piece of advice for future MIT students that we could finish off with? The most important 
thing they can take away from here in addition to the excellent engineering education I'm sure will emerge is that they've had the opportunity to learn to write persuasively and speak in public effectively because that's valuable in any profession one pursues and is particularly valuable in science and engineering since so many of your fellow practitioners don't have that education and it's really easy to stand out. But I can't emphasize enough how much my training as a theater major in university has advanced my career as an astrophysicist. I attribute 75% of my success in life to what I learned how to write critically, analytically, and persuasively in my essays and to perform on a stage uh, have been just incredibly valuable to my work in education and in science. And I think integrating that as we have into the education at NMITE is going to give the graduates even a greater leg up than they have from their engineering education here. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Entirely my pleasure. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reading People. We're Mike Hereford on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. See your contact details in the bio. Till next time. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, mineral. I know the kings of England and I quote the facts historical from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted too with matters mathematical. I understand equations both are simple and quadratical. A bad binomial theorem I'm teeming with a lot of news. Lot of news? Got it. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. I'm very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and immalculus. In short, it matters vegetable, animal, and mineral. I am the very model of a modern major general. Presto agitato silver play maestro. In fact, when I know what's meant by mammal on a reveling, when I can tell a side of my rifle from a javelin, when such a place as sort of stands a price I'm aware yet, and when I know precisely what is meant by commissariat. When I have no more progress to be made in modern gunnery, when I know more of Texas than an office in an honorary, in short, when I have a smattering of elemental strategy, you'll say a better major general has never rode a horse! Major general has never rode a horse! Say a better major has only been brought down to the beginning of the century. Silly man is vegetable, animal, and mineral. I'm the very model of a modern man in general!